We're going to read through the, um, the book of Leviticus. We probably won't go through verse by verse, and tonight is just an introduction uh, that I would like to give to the book. This is not uh, a super fun reading. It's not like Kings or Chronicles or some of the more narrative portions of the Old Testament where you get a story that unfolds in front of you and you get to kind of ride along with the story and, and understand the characters. Um, this is a, a book of the law. Um, I don't know how many people here kind of go home and read the Ohio Revised Code uh, when you, you, know, you have a few extra minutes if you bust that out and kind of read through it. Um, that, uh, that is also not fun reading, um, but uh, it's important. I mean, it's placed in the, where, where it is in the scriptures um, for a reason, and it spells out um, what it is like to live, or what, what the rules are for the, the children of Israel as they're living in the presence of God. And so I'm hoping tonight to give you uh, a little bit of context, kind of like where the book is positioned within, uh, within the Old Testament, uh, kind of what the broad themes are, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about how it's, how it's structured. I'll give you an outline of it. Uh, and then next week we'll dive right into to, uh, the content itself. Uh, I did want to, um, so I, I was reading uh, Augustine, St. Augustine. Uh, he wrote uh, City of God and a variety of other books, but he said, it stuck out to me today, a, a saying of his. He said, uh, if you read the scriptures uh, or some part of them and you believe that you have understood them, uh, but you find that you do not love God or your neighbor more, uh, then you have not understood them and you should read them again. Uh, until you do. Uh, and so that's kind of the conviction that I come to the text with, that every part of it is, is good for us to read and know and understand. Uh, and not, it, not just because when you read things, you ought to understand them, but because it's supposed to enhance our love for God and our neighbor. Uh, and so let's, let's approach the text with that in mind. Um, I bet that just about, I, you know, I bet tens of thousands of people every year read uh, they use like Bible reading plans where they go through and kind of try to read the whole scriptures in a year or all the scriptures in a year. Uh, I bet a significant portion uh, of people who uh, do that, they stop when they get to Leviticus. Because uh, as I said, it's, it, when you get to the infectious skin disease parts, which I'm very excited about teaching, uh, it, you kind of think, well, uh, you know, is this, is this really for us? Uh, and I'm going to say that it is. Uh, and I'm going to give you some context tonight for kind of understanding how to look at it. Um, so, introduction. I don't, um, Richard, do we have an outline? Yes, thank you. Uh, I send this to Richard in like a handwritten form, and then he turns it into an outline. He's, he's the best, and I love him. Uh, I'm serious. Um, so, author. Um, traditionally, uh, the, the tradition says that this is written by Moses. It's one of the... Uh, it's a part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, all of which are purportedly, by tradition, written by Moses. Uh, you will not find anywhere in Leviticus where it says, uh, hey, I'm Moses and I'm writing this, though. Um, so there's no, um, there's no claim of authorship within it. Um, in general, people believe that, people believe that it, uh, current, the current scholarship says Probably there's a core of mosaic material, like he created some of it and then people redacted or added or uh, as they were led by God over time. Uh, but 
for all we know, it was written by Moses, and that's, that's good enough for me. Um, second, the date, uh, it, it was certainly written uh, extremely early, probably around the same time as Genesis. Uh, and then this priestly versus holiness sources. So we're, when we look at it, we're going to see that there are two halves of Leviticus, and they're kind of joined up. One half, which is the first half, is about how you offer sacrifices. Uh, first, uh, we'll see that it tells it from the perspective of the person who's bringing the sacrifice, like this is what you do. Um, and then the, the second half of the first half is about what the priest does. It's, it's instructions to the priest to carry out the sacrifice. Uh, and then the, the second half is what we usually talk about when we talk about Leviticus. It's uh, the holiness part, right? It talks about how to live a holy life, how to live a, a sanctified life, um, and kind of rules for conduct. Uh, and there are all kinds of them that we'll read through, but right down to don't plant two types of crops in the same field and don't wear uh, mixed fabrics. So polyester's out, unfortunately. Sorry, 70s. Don't... Um, don't, uh, and then, you know, all kinds of economic information, like every seven years, release all debts, um, and whoever owned the land first, give it back to them. That, that sort of uh, economic life is also a part of the book as well. Um, and then uh, it ends with like a benediction or a farewell. Um, but those, the scholarship, uh, some people think that that those two sources are different people or different different uh, groups of writers, and then somebody took all that material and shaped it. As I said, there's no reason for us to think uh, well that it wasn't inspired, no matter who wrote it. But there's no reason to think that Moses didn't write it because it doesn't say otherwise. Um, the big themes: uh, one, uh, this is if no if so when, when I taught Hebrews last time. I uh, repeated every time what the theme was, which was Jesus is better and don't look back. You're going to hear these two phrases over and over and over again as we go through the next few weeks. One, uh, be holy as I am holy, right? That's what, that's what God is saying to them. You have to be separate because I'm separate. You have to be different because I'm different. And second, uh, holiness looks kind of weird, uh, especially in the context of this, the, this Old Testament people. Um, God took, right, uh, Genesis is the story of God picking out, it's the story of mankind's fall, and then God picking out one family amongst humanity and saying, this is my people. The, this, is, this is the method or the means through which I will redeem all of humanity. Right, saying that to Abraham. Uh, at the end of Genesis they, they are shuttled off to Egypt where they spend 400 years. And then and there's a, a gap of silence in their experience where God does not speak to them for that 400 years. Uh, and at the end of that, right, they are, they are a nation of slaves uh, and they are released and sent, they undergo the exodus, right? And they, they journey towards uh, the promised land and in that time, right, God, God picked a family. He took them to Egypt and he made them a nation. Now he's bringing them back. Uh, and in the desert, he makes them a weapon to wield against his enemies in Canaan. Uh, and and uh, 
when we get into Joshua and Judges, you can see that, that take full flower. But in order to be effective, they've got to be weird. They've got to understand who God is and what the gods of the nations are. And, and they have to learn to reject them. And that's why we have this, this space in Leviticus where God lays out for them all the things that you have to do to live with God. So, uh, positioning of, of Leviticus, um, let's turn to Exodus chapter 34. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to read two really important events here. Um, and I, I, I want to, the, the reason to read this to you or to, to kind of go through this uh, these passages is to show you the circumstances that exist as they're receiving the law. We're going to go first to uh, Exodus 34, 29, am I right? 34, 29. Um, so Exodus is two stories. It's the children of Israel, like, let my people go, and then he lets them go, and then the, the Pharaoh's army chases them, and they all get drowned in the, the Red Sea, Right? That's like the part everybody knows and is excited about. Uh, and then there's this extended, like the last half of it is Moses going up into the mountain and communing with God, uh, receiving from God uh, the, the, um, the law. Like he's receiving from God, God's expectations. Uh, and uh, we're told repeatedly that he, um, he's in the presence of God. Um, and he, you know, he gets the covenant uh, and the law. And then in verse 29, it says, And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. Right? He's been in the presence of God and the... the the outcome of that, or the, the output of that, is that his, he is shining, right? He's radiant. Um, like, like, physically, there is light coming off of his person, and they can't even look at him. Uh, and when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. Well, yeah. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. And when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. So anytime he goes into the tabernacle to speak with God, he takes the veil off because God can see him, or God can look at him, obviously, but, but uh, the, the children of Israel can't. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, as far as we, I find no place in all of the rest of the description of Moses' life where he stops this practice. As far as we know in the narrative, his face shone to the end of his days. He wore a veil over his face. Until he died. Um, and I bring this up because um, we look at Leviticus and we're like, why would people do this? Um, my supposition to you is that if somebody came to me and their face was shining 
and they talked to God and they said, this is what we ought to do. I, I listen up real quick. Um, I, I, I would at least pay attention to what was being said. Uh, and that's particularly true in light of uh, what we're going to read next, because the end of Exodus is about God moving in with the children of Israel, right? M- most of what Moses receives is the law and then instructions for the tabernacle. And when we read Hebrews, what we learned was that what Moses saw when, he, when the tabernacle was described to him was what the tabernacle looks like in perfection, right, in heaven. Um, so he had this idea of like what the plan was, comes down and he, and he has all this huge list of instructions about how the dimensions of the tabernacle and what it has in it and how it works. Um, and uh, so the end uh, of uh, Exodus is about the children of Israel preparing a place where God's going to move in with them. Let's go to Exodus 25.8. And Richard, I'm sorry if I'm skipping around a bit. I apologize. I'm not really sorry. So, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof. Even so shall you make it. And then we skip to uh, Exodus 40, which is after all these instructions are given. Exodus 40, verse 34, wherein it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. And if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and the fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So they're there in the wilderness, being led by a guy with a, whose skin is radiating, right? And they're led during the day by a, uh, a cloud, uh, by a pillar of cloud, and during the night by a pillar of fire that exists over this tent. And Moses goes in there sometimes and talks to God, um, who has an audible voice in other, other places. Um, so understand that context when, when we read Leviticus. It's like, why would they, why would they agree to do all this stuff? Because uh, of the man with the shiny face and the, you know, the, the pillar of fire that's over the tabernacle, proving that God is there. It's um, it's one thing to believe, right, when Moses is telling you. It's another when you can wake up and walk out of your tent and look over and the cloud is there, right? So th- this is the context into which Leviticus is being spoken. Um, the other thing I'll mention here too, um, and Richard, I didn't tell you about this one, I'm sorry. Uh, it's Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 5.13. This is a recording of, so the, the, the glory of the Lord abode there, or was in the tabernacle, um, from that time until, help if I went to the right place, 2 Chronicles 5.13 says, this is the a description of the, the building of the temple, right? David 
was the general contractor for the temple. Like he wrote the plans and secured the materials and then Solomon was the one who built it. So this is in Solomon's day. Uh, And 5.13 says, it came to pass, uh, so everybody's celebrating. It's a huge party. Uh, It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments and music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. So he's taken up residence in his, his permanent place, right? Uh, the whole reason for building the temple was that David looked out of his window and said, It's not fit that I should live in a palace made of cedar, of cedar and ivory, and God lives in a tent in the rain. Right, so he creates the temple for God. Uh, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Um, so you have this persistent, right, this persistent presence of God in the midst of the Israelites. Uh, can, you, can you show that picture I sent you, Richard? I just give Richard vague instructions and then he does it. So I, I, I don't know how many of you have ever seen, this is a, uh, Michelangelo's statue of Moses. Um, and you may notice that in that statue, as in many artistic representations of Moses after he communed with God, he has horns, right? There are horns coming out of his forehead. That, that's because, uh, I, I was interested to find this, or thought this was interesting, uh, in uh, Hebrew, the word that describes the rays of the sun calls them the horns of the sun. Uh, and so when it got translated into Latin, everybody was like, oh, my, Moses had horns. And so, that, and so that's, what, that's what Michelangelo was working with. Um, I just thought that was interesting. And so if you ever see that, that like Moses represented with horns, that it's, that's a depiction of him shining. Um, okay. Hmm. So, uh, let's go to the next one. And then next. Okay. So here's a a general outline. Uh, And as as I said, we'll go through this uh, over the next few weeks in much more detail. But um, we get a description of five offerings and sacrifices um, in the first seven chapters. There are three sweet savor offerings. um, And in the... In our King James, at the end of the description of each one of these, it says, uh, and that was a sweet savor to the Lord. So a sweet, sweet aroma or a sweet smell. Then there are non-sweet savor offer. There is a non-sweet savor offering. Uh, and there is, uh, the, the six and seven are about like what the, the person who's offering things should do. Uh, eight through ten is about what the priests ought to do. Um, and then I neglected to put the, the chapter numbers, but the, the rest of the book falls into uh, a section about holiness in daily life. Like, how do you live uh, in, in a holy, separated way? Uh, next is holy days. Um, and there's, the, there's a, like, so the holy days are all of the Jewish holidays we know about, plus uh, the idea or concept of jubilee. Um, which is, that's every seven years, all of your debt is discharged. And if you sold your land before, you, the land is yours again, or the land is back in your family. And we're going to talk uh, quite a bit about that when we get to it. It's an important part of uh, knowing why 
the exile happened. Uh, so the exile happens much later in uh, Israelite history, um, but it lasts for a very specific period of time, uh, and it lasts a year for every Jubilee year that they did not observe. Um, so God said, okay, well, we'll do this all at once if that's how we have to do it. Um, Finally, laws and prophecies for the promised land, uh, and then a dedication and a devotion. Next slide, Richard. So two concepts I want you to get uh, as we're going through this, um, and I, I can't claim credit for this. Um, there is an excellent book about the first five books of the Bible. Um, it's the Pentateuch as Narrative by John Salehammer, uh, who is, I believe he teaches at Multnomah University in Oregon, but um, is a... Uh, a, an academic who has spent most of his life studying the Pentateuch and kind of trying to, uh, he's like, why is it put together the way it is, is the question that he's asking. So it's, an, it's a narrative. It's all a story, even the parts that we think of uh, as being like the Ohio Revised Code. Um, and so he talks about that a lot. Uh, and then there's another, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, who I refer to quite a bit, um, he's written a couple books. One of them is The Unseen Realm, uh, and uh, wrote What Does God Want, uh, and a few others that are very good. But they're both big on this idea that of sacred space. Um, and just in a high-level concept here, because uh, we're going to really dig down into this as we get further and further into the book, God wants to meet with people. Right, that's, that's God, God, wants to, God wants to be with us. He wants us to be in his family, in a place that is for that purpose. That's why Eden exists, right? In uh, Israelite cosmology, in the cosmology of the ancient Near East, like the way they saw the world, God or gods live on mountaintop gardens, right? That's, that's where heaven meets earth. Right, the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm meets the earthly realm, and where it overlaps, that's where we can meet with God. Right, that that was the purpose of Eden. Right, was man was created there, and man walked with God in the cool of the day. Right, that's that's exactly what happened there. But then we were ejected from Eden. Everything after that is an attempt to reconstruct Eden. Right, and sometimes man tries to do it himself. Think of the story uh, in Genesis eleven of the Tower of Babel, right? The, the, the story is, well, God won't come down to us, so let's go to him. Uh, and they build their silly tower, and God laughs at them, right? And confuses their language, and they all disperse. Um, but every, almost all of the stories in the early part of Genesis are about how do we get back? How do we do that again? How do we get to a point? How do, how do we, people, enter where heaven meets earth so that we can commune with God and that's what the tabernacle is in Exodus, right? God is saying to them, I have picked you out of all the families of the earth. I've made you a nation. We're on our way to the promised land. Make this tent so I can meet with you there. Uh, and we're not going to go through uh, the description. There's a reason the description of the tabernacle is like 10 chapters long. It, it's, in, it's in exacting detail. It reflects the idea that that's where heaven meets earth. That it's, it, it is sacred space. Um, and the same thing is true of the temple. Like, there's a long description of the temple, and if you read it carefully, it's a reconstruction of Eden. There's all kinds of Eden imagery 
uh, related to the temple. And it's like they're recreating Eden at God's instruction so they can meet with him there. So that, that idea, it um, takes shape in Leviticus in the form of all of these laws that are about ritual purity, right? You, God's not your buddy. You can't just walk into his presence, right? He's, he's not, he's God. He's endless and infinite and alien. Um, and in order to beat him, you have to meet him on his terms. You, you can't just walk in. Um, so that, that's, that's the idea. And we're going to see um, a sort of two sorts of, um, uh, they're not, uh, two sorts of problems that a person can have, right? One is ritual impurity. Uh, and if, if it's ritual impurity, you can't walk into the presence of God. You can't participate in the sacrifices or the other things that, that the congregation does to worship God. The reason for that is you're ritually impure. Uh, and those laws don't have anything to do with whether you're good or bad from our perspective. So if you touch a dead body, uh, you have to go through a, a purification ritual before you can enter sacred space. Is it, uh, is it morally wrong to touch a, a dead body? Not unless you made it. Right? I mean, if you, if you killed a guy, that's probably bad. Um, but like the, just the mere act of touching a dead body isn't morally impure. And then there are other things that make you morally impure. Right? And uh, so I called this a book of laws a moment ago. Um, there are a lot of laws about how you, bec- or a lot of procedures for you to become clean, right? To, to purge the ritual impurity so you can approach God. There aren't a lot of laws about, or there aren't a lot of rules about how you purge moral impurity. Uh, they didn't really have a concept of like incarceration. Uh, the, the penalty for most things that you do bad is is death, because they like they don't have time to drag you around or put people to guard you. Right? Like, you think about it practically. Uh, their concept, uh, you know, and they're they're also like if you stole from somebody, the the uh, the remedy is to provide them with what you stole again and plus something extra. Um, so there are laws like that. But those, that moral impurity part, uh, we're going to really hone in on and focus on because what I find in Leviticus as I read it is there's not a lot of discussion about like how, how can I purge my personal sin, which is kind of what we think it's about. Um, and then second, uh, holiness on a local scale. Um, so... Uh, and actually, Richard, maybe you can go to the next one because I think that it kind of keys into that as well. All right, I've got like six more minutes of material. I find that I lose people after about 35 minutes. Everybody gets real tired, so I'm going to stop in about six minutes. Um, so that, that idea of uh, holiness on a local scale, that Leviticus is these three things. Um, it's a law code. It's also a guide for living, right? It's telling people, like, um, anytime I talk about my wife, I get in trouble, but I'm going to do it again. I'm going to live on the edge. Um, when, I, when I married Deanna, right, I had never lived, I'd never lived with a wife before. I'd never been married. So uh, when we got our own apartment, we moved in, uh, 
and ever since then, right, there are, there are rules. All those of you who are married know this, right? There's, there's an unspoken contractual obligation between you and your spouse about how you're going to live. Um, yeah, so, like, great example. Uh, sorry. Uh, like, last week, right, um, I get in the shower. I get in the shower every morning, and every morning I use the towel that's on the towel rod, and I dry myself off with it, and I throw it in the basket, and then I go about my day. Um, and Deanna comes in, and she's like, why, why do you never put a towel back on the towel rack? Right? And it, it, I, I kid you not, it has never occurred to me in 48 years of living that I'd have to put a towel back on the towel rack for the next person who's going to use it. It just magically appears there, and then I use it, and then, it, right? It, it, it has never occurred to me from the beginning of my life to last Wednesday or whenever it was. And, uh, right? So, like, if, if there had been a book of Leviticus that was about how to live with my wife, I would have known that, right? I, I would have had those instructions about, like, what to do. But, right, so God's moving in with them, right? He's moving in with them, and he's, he's going to be their partner, and he's going to be right there, and, and, and they need to know what he likes and what he doesn't, right? That, that's the, that's, that's the, the guide, the guidance that he's giving them is, I get to pick what's right and wrong because I'm God. Here's what I think. So now, now, I'm living with you, so do what I think. Um, that wasn't so bad, was it? Uh, the, <laughs> the, the other thing uh, that I want to focus in on uh, that Leviticus is, if we could turn to Leviticus 10. Um, so is it, I, don't, um, I work in a factory. I'm, I, I don't actually do anything strenuous, but I work in a factory. Um, and I know some of you have worked in industrial settings in the past. If you do, you know that for most processes where you use heavy machinery, there is an op standard or a, like a, a book or even maybe a video that they show you that tells you all the things that you have to do to use that machine appropriately to create a quality product, to, for it to do what it needs to do. They show you the lockout, tagout procedure and all that stuff. Um, so let's read this, this passage in chapter 10. Uh, beginning with verse 1. And Nadab and, and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, uh, so Moses' brother, took either of them his censer, right? Censer is like a, a thing that, ends, that incense is in, like a, a plate. And put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So strange fire here means unauthorized. Uh, like the, the word means something like, it. Uh, that's not how you were supposed to do it. Uh, it was unauthorized. Um, and we don't know exactly what they did, uh, whether it looked like maybe a pagan practice or a, a practice that is associated with worship of other gods. We don't know what they did because it's not descriptive. What we just know it was unauthorized. It was strange. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to posit here that one of the reasons Leviticus exists and is structured the way it is is because it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Being around God's dangerous, so you have to do it right. Um, especially when he is physically in your midst, um, you've got to do it right. 
there's another passage uh, which I will turn to, but I did not tell Richard about. Uh, Numbers 15. So this is afterwards. Right, this is after, after the, the law is given. Uh, and it includes, as we'll find out, the instruction that you are not to work on the Sabbath day. 15. 32. And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. So he was gathering wood for, for fire. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. Uh, and they put him in ward, so they, they, they held him, right? They, they didn't put him in jail, but they, they put, him, put him under guard because it was not declared what should be done to him. They, they didn't know what to do. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall, shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died, as the Lord commanded Moses. Boy, that's hard to swallow, isn't it? Right? He was just gathering some sticks. Um, and we'll, we'll dive way, way into this. But being around God's dangerous. That's, that's the, one of the points of Leviticus, is you've, you've got to do it right. And the reason you've got to do it right in the context of Leviticus and Numbers is because God is creating something special, something unique in all of history. Uh, he has taken these people, uh, a, a nation of manual laborers and soft bed slaves and uh, uneducated uh, you know, workers out of Egypt, and in the desert, he's going to make them into, an, into a kingdom of priests. Uh, so we're, we're going to talk about that in coming weeks. Um, I don't know, I'm hoping that I'll be able to uh, make that story in numbers uh, not go away, because that's bad, but I'm hoping I'll be able to explain it uh, in a way that can satisfy us all.